Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Henry James at Work. Written by Theodora Bonsequet and published in 1920, this story looks at the famed author, Henry James. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who took the time to leave a review during the week. Your ongoing support is greatly appreciated. Thank you to Mercy Scott for your congratulatory message regarding our new baby. It was greatly appreciated. Thank you to Twitter users Jay Johnson and C. Will for recommending the podcast. I'm glad the podcast has been helping out. I'd also like to send a belated thank you to everyone who has kindly left me a review on Audible. I've only just recently seen these and appreciate that you took the time to send your thanks. Finally, I'd like to send a thank you to all patrons and sponsors who support the show financially with a monthly contribution. Whether it's $2 or $5, your support allows me to bring out more episodes to help those who need them. If you would like to sponsor the show because the podcast helps you fall asleep, please visit boyyoutosleep.com. If you find the podcast beneficial, I have a special favour to ask. Please share the podcast with a friend who may also need a good night's rest. And of course, it would be amazing if you could leave a review and comment in iTunes or leave a rating in Spotify. And if you're not already please be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find me at boytosleep.com or on Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Henry James at Work by Theodora Bossenquet I knew nothing of Henry James beyond the revelation of his novels and tales before the summer of 1907. Then, as I sat in a top-floor office near Whitehall, one August morning, compiling a very full index to the report of the Royal Commission on Coast Erosion, my ears were struck by the astonishing sound of passages from the ambassadors being dictated to a young typist. Neglecting my blue book, 
I turned round to watch the operator ticking off sentences, which seemed to be at least as much of a surprise to her as they were to me. When my bewilderment had broken into a question, I learnt that Henry James was on the point of coming back from Italy, that he had asked to be provided with an amuensis, and that the lady at the typewriter was making acquaintance with his style. Without any hopeful design of supplanting her, I lodged an immediate petition that I might be allowed the next opportunity of filling the post, supposing she should never, ever abandon it. I was told to my amazement that I need not wait. The established candidate was not enthusiastic about the prospect before her, was even genuinely relieved to look in another direction. If I set about practicing typewriting on a Remington machine at once, I could be interviewed by Henry James as soon as he arrived in London. Within an hour, I had begun work on the typewriter, and by the time he was ready to interview me, I could tap out paragraphs of the ambassadors at quite a fair speed. He asked no questions at that interview about my speed on a typewriter or about anything else. The friend to whom he had applied for an amanuensis had told him that I was sufficiently the right young woman for his purpose, and he relied on her word. He had, at best, little hope of any young woman beyond docility. We sat in armchairs on either side of a fireless grate while we observed each other. I suppose he found me harmless, and I know that I found him overwhelming. He was much more massive than I had expected, much broader and stouter and stronger. I remembered that someone had told me he used to be taken for a sea captain when he wore a beard, but it was clear now, with the beard shaved away, he would hardly have passed for, say, an admiral, in spite of the keen grey eyes set in a face burned to a colourable seafaring brown by the Italian sun. No successful naval officer could have afforded to keep that sensitive mobile mouth. After the interview, I wondered what kind of impression one might have gained from a chance encounter in some such observation cell as a railway carriage. Would it have been possible to fit him confidently into any single category? He had reacted with so much success against both the American accent and the English manner that he seemed only doubtfully Anglo-Saxon. He might perhaps have been some species of disguised cardinal or even a Roman nobleman amusing himself by playing the part of a Sussex squire. 
the observer could at least have guessed that any part he chose to assume would be finely conceived and generously played, for his features were all cast in the classical mould of greatness. He might very well have been a merciful Caesar or a benevolent Napoleon, and a painter who worked at his portrait a year or two later was excusably reminded of so many illustrious makers of history that he declared it to be a hard task to isolate the individual character of the model. If the interview was overwhelming, it had none of the usual awkwardness of such curious conversations. Instead of critical angles and disconcerting silences, there were only benign curves and ample reassurances. There was encouraging gaiety in an expense of bright check waistcoat. He invited me to ask any questions I liked, but I had none to ask. I wanted nothing but to be allowed to go to Rye and work his typewriter. He was prepared, however, with his statements, and at once I was seated opposite to him, the strong, slow stream of his deliberate speech played over me without ceasing. He had it on his mind to tell me the conditions of life and labour at Rye, and he unburdened himself fully with numberless amplifications and qualifications, but without taking any real break. It would be a dull business, he warned me, and I should probably find Rye a dull place. He told me of rooms in Mermaid Street, very simple, rustic and antique, but that is the case for everything near my house. And this particular little old house is very near mine, and I know the good woman for kind and worthy, and a convenient cook, and in short. It was settled at once that I should take the rooms, that I should begin my duties in October. Since winter was approaching, Henry James had begun to use a panelled, green-painted room on the upper floor of Lamb House for his work. It was known simply as the Green Room, it had many advantages as a winter workroom, for it was small enough to be easily warmed and a wide south window caught all the morning sunshine. The window overhung the smooth green lawn, shaded in summer by a mulberry tree, surrounded by roses and enclosed behind a tall, bright wall. It never failed to give the owner pleasure to look out of this window at his charming English garden where he could watch his English gardener digging the flower beds or mowing the lawn or sweeping up fallen leaves. There was another window for the afternoon sun looking towards Winchelsea 
and doubly glazed against the force of the westerly gales. Three high bookcases, two big writing desks, and an easy chair filled most of the space in the green room, but left enough dear floor for a restricted amount of the pacing exercise that was indispensable to literary composition. On summer days, Henry James liked better to work in the large garden room, which gave him a longer stretch for perambulation and a window overlooking the cobbled street that curved up the hill past his door. He liked to be able to relieve the tension of a difficult sentence by a glance down the street. He enjoyed hailing a passing friend or watching a motor car pant up the sharp little slope. The sight of one of these vehicles could be counted on to draw from him a vigorous outburst of amazement, admiration or horror for the complications of an age that produced such efficient monsters for gobbling protective distance. The business of acting as a medium between the spoken and the typewritten word was at first as alarming as it was fascinating. The most handsome and expensive typewriters exercise as vicious an influence as any other over the spelling of the operator and the new pattern of a Remington machine which I found installed offered a few additional problems. But Henry James's patience during my struggles with that baffling mechanism was unfailing. He watched me helplessly, and he was one of the few men without the smallest pretension to the understanding of a machine. And he was as easy to spell from as an open dictionary. The experience of years had evidently taught him that it was not safe to leave any word of more than one syllable to luck. He took pains to pronounce every pronounceable letter. He always spelt out the words which the ear might confuse with others. And he never left a single punctuation mark unuttered except sometimes that necessary point, the full stop. Occasionally, in a low aside, he would interject a few words for the enlightenment of the amanuensis, adding, for instance, after spelling out the newcomes, that the words were the title of a novel by one Thackeray. The practice of dictation was begun in the 90s. By 1907, it was a confirmed habit, its effects being easily recognisable in his style, which became more and more like free, involved, unanswered talk. I know, he once said to me, that I'm too diffuse when I'm dictating, but he found dictation not only an easier, but a more inspiring method of composing 
than writing with his own hand, and he considered that the gain in expression more than compensated for any loss of concision. The spelling out of the words, the indication of commas, was scarcely felt as a drag on the movement of his thought. It all seems, he once explained, to be so much more effectively and unceasingly pulled out of me in speech than in writing. Indeed, at the time when I began to work for him, he had reached a stage at which the click of a Remington machine acted as a positive spur. He found it more difficult to compose the music of any other make. During a fortnight when the Remington was out of order, he dictated to an Oliver typewriter with evident discomfort and he found it almost impossibly disconcerting to speak to something that made no responsive sound at all. Once or twice when he was ill and in bed, I took down a note or two by hand, but as a rule he liked to have the typewriter moved into his bedroom for even the shortest letters. Yet there were to the end certain kinds of work which he was obliged to do with a pen. Plays, if they were to be kept within the limits of possible performance, and short stories, if they were to remain within the bounds of publication in a monthly magazine, must be written by hand. He was well aware that the manual labour of writing was his best aid to a desired brevity. The plays such as The Outcry, for instance, were copied straight from his manuscript, since he was too much afraid of the murderous limits of the English theatre to risk the temptation of dictation and embroidery. With the short stories, he allowed himself a little more freedom, dictating them from his written draft and expanding them as he went to an extent which inevitably defeated his original purpose. It almost literally, true to say of the sheaf of tales, collected in the finer grain that they were all written in response to a single request for a short story for Harper's Monthly Magazine. The length was to be about 5,000 words, and each promising idea was cultivated in the optimistic belief that it would produce a flower too frail and small to demand any exhaustive treatment. But even under pressure of being written by hand, with dictated interpolations rigidly restricted, each in turn pushed out to lengths that no chopping could reduce to the word limit. The tale eventually printed was Crepey Cornelia, but although it was the shortest of the batch, it was thought too long to be published in one number, 
and appeared in two sections, to the great annoyance of the author. The method adopted for full-length novels was very different. With a clear run of 100,000 words or more before him, Henry James always cherished the delusive expectation of being able to fit his theme quite easily between the covers of a volume. It was not until he was more than halfway through that the problem of space began to be embarrassing. At the beginning, he had no questions of compression to attend to, and he broke ground as he said, by talking to himself day by day about the characters and construction until the persons and their actions were vividly present in his inward eye. The soliloquy was of course recorded on the typewriter. He had from far back tended to dramatise all material that life gave him, and he more and more prefigured his novels at staged performances, arranged in acts and scenes, with the characters making their observed entrances and exits. These scenes he worked out until he felt himself so thoroughly possessed of the action that he could begin on the dictation of the book itself, a process which has been incorrectly described by one critic as redictation from a rough draft. It was nothing of the kind. Owners of the volumes containing the ivory tower or the sense of the past have only to turn to the notes printed at the end to see that the scenario dictated in advance contains practically none of the phrases used in the final work. The two sets of notes are a different and much more interesting literary record than a mere draft. They are the framework set up for imagination to clothe with the spun web of life. But they are not bare framework. They are elaborate and abundant. They are the kind of exercise described in The Death of a Lion as a great gossiping, eloquent letter, the overflow into talk of an artist's amorous design. But the design was thus mapped out with the clear understanding that at a later stage and at closer quarters, the subject might grow away from the plan. In the intimacy of composition, pre-noted proportions and arrangements do most uncommonly insist on making themselves different by shifts and variations, always improving, which impose themselves as one goes and keep the door open always to something more right and more related. It is subject to that constant possibility all the while that one does pre-note and tentatively sketch. The preliminary sketch was seldom consulted after the novel began to take permanent shape, 
but the same method of talking out was resorted to at difficult points of the narrative as it progressed, always for the sake of testing in advance the values of the persons involved in a given situation so that their creator should ensure their right action both for the development of the drama and the truth of their relations to each other. The knowledge of all the conscious motives and concealments of his creatures, gained by unwearied observation of their attitudes behind the scenes, enabled Henry James to exhibit them with a final confidence that dispensed with explanations. Among certain stumbling blocks in the path of the perfect comprehension of his readers is their uneasy doubt of the sincerity of the conversational encounters recorded. Most novelists provide some clue to help their readers to distinguish truth from falsehood, and in the theatre, although husbands and wives may be deceived by lies, the audience is usually privy to the plot. But a study of the notes to the ivory tower will make it clear that between the people created by Henry James, lying is as frequent among mortals and not easier to detect. For the volumes of memories, a small boy and others, notes of a son and brother, and the uncompleted middle years, no preliminary work was needed. A straight dive into the past brought to the surface treasure after treasure, a wealth of material which became embarrassing. The earlier book was begun in 1911, after Henry James had returned from a year in the United States, where he had been called by his brother's fatal illness. He had come back, after many seasons of country solitude, to his former love of the friendly winter, and for the first few months after his return from America, he lodged near the Reform Club and came to the old house in Chelsea, where I was living and where he had taken a room for his work. It was a quiet room, long and narrow and rather dark. He used to speak of it as my Chelsea cellar. There he settled down to write what, as he outlined it to me, was to be a set of notes to his brother Williams's early letters, prefaced by a brief account of the family into which they were both born. But an entire volume of memories was finished before bringing William to an age for writing letters, and a small boy came to a rather abrupt end as a result of the writer's sudden decision that a break must be made at once if the flood of remembrance was not to drown his pious intention. 
it was extraordinarily easy for him to recover the past. He had always been sensitive to impressions, and his mind was stored with records of exposure. All he had to do was to render his sense of those records as adequately as he could. Each morning, after reading over the pages written the day before, he would settle down in a chair for an hour or so of conscious effort. Then, lifted on rising tide of inspiration, he would get up and pace up and down the room, sounding out the periods in tones of resonant assurance. At such times, he was beyond reach of irrelevant sounds or sights. Hosts of cats, a tribe he usually routed with shouts of execration, might wail outside the window, phalanxes of motor cars bearing dreaded visitors might hoot at the door. He heard nothing of them. The only thing that could arrest his progress was the escape of the word he wanted to use. When that had vanished, he broke off the rhythmic pacing and made his way to a chimney piece or bookcase, tall enough to support his elbows, while he rested his head in his hands, and audibly perused the fugitive. In the autumn of 1907, when I began to tap the Remington typewriter at Henry James's dictation, he was engaged on the arduous task of preparing his novels and tales for the definitive New York edition, published in 1909. Since it was only between breakfast and luncheon that he undertook what he called inventive work, he gave the hours from half-past ten to half-past one to the composition of the prefaces which are so interesting a feature of the edition. In the evenings he read over again the work of former years, treating the printed pages like so many proof sheets of extremely corrupt text. The revision was a task he had seen in advance as formidable. He had cultivated the habit of forgetting past achievements, almost to the pitch of a sincere conviction that nothing he had written before about 1890 could come with any shred of credit through the ordeal of a critical inspection. On the morning when he was obliged to give time to the selection of a set of tales for the forthcoming volume, he confessed that the difficulty of selection was mainly the difficulty of reading them at all. They seem, he said, so bad until I have read them that I can't force myself to go through them, except with a pen in my hand, altering as I go the crudities and ineptitudes that to my sense deform each page. Unfamiliarity and adverse prejudice 
are rare advantages for a writer to bring to the task of choosing among his works. For Henry James, the prejudice might give way to half-reluctant appreciation as the unfamiliarity passed into recognition, but it must be clear to every reader of the prefaces that he never lost the sense of being paternally responsible for two distinct families. For the earlier brood, acknowledged fruit of his alliance with romance, he claimed indulgence on the ground of their youthful spontaneity, their confident assurance, their rather touching good faith. One catches echoes of a plea that these elderly youngsters may not be too closely compared to their inevitable disadvantage with the richly endowed, the carefully bred, the highly civilised and sensitised children of his second marriage, contracted with that wealthy bride, experience. Attentive readers of the novels may perhaps find the distinction between the two groups less remarkable than it seemed to their writer. They may even wonder whether the second marriage was not rather a silver wedding with the old romantic mistress cleverly disguised as a woman of the world. The different note was possibly due more to the substitution of dictation for pen and ink than to any profound change of heart. But whatever the reason, their author certainly found it necessary to spend a good deal of time working on the earlier tales before he considered them fit for appearance in the company of those composed later. Some members of the Alder family he entirely cast off, not counting them worth the expense of completely new clothes. Others he left in their place, more from a necessary, though deprecated, respect for the declared taste of the reading public than because he loved them for their own sake. It would, for instance, have been difficult to exclude Daisy Miller from any representative collection of his work, yet the popularity of the tale had become almost a grievance. To be acclaimed as the author of Daisy Miller by persons blandly unconscious of the wings of the dove or the golden bowl was a reason among many for Henry James's despair of intelligent comprehension. Confronted repeatedly with Daisy, he felt himself rather in the position of some grand dame who, with a jewel case of sparkling diamonds, is constrained by her admirers always to appear in the simple string of moonstones worn 
at her first dance. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you enjoyed listening to that, and I hope it helped you fall asleep. You're always welcome to listen to another episode whenever you like. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you a new episode very soon. Good night.